I asked a fairly similar question last Sunday evening, but I'm going to ask it slightly different. I'm going to ask it again. I wonder what your relationship with the police is. What is your relationship with the police? You see, when someone breaks into our house or somebody steals something from us, we call them and they show up and they help us, and we're really grateful and we're really pleased to see them. And then we're driving down the A38 and we see a, a flyover and a van with a camera in it, and we're not that pleased to see them. And that is the lot of the police. Sometimes we want to see them and we're really grateful. Sometimes we're not that keen to see them and we're not that happy. But it's the same police. They do the same job. It encompasses everything that they do. You know, we've just had... In fact, before, I wonder if... I wonder if that's you this morning with God. I wonder if sometimes you're delighted that he shows up. You ask him to show up and he does. And there's other times he shows up and you're not just sure you want him there. Maybe think about that for a moment. This week, if you'll have seen the news that we had an evacuation in the area of Kiam, of our city of Plymouth, a World War II bomb, 500 kilograms of explosives, pretty destructive, was in the area of Kiam, and there was an evacuation. And the police did a great job. We were pleased to see them then. They turned up, and they made a cordon, and they made everyone safe, and they evacuated everyone, and everyone pulled together and did a great job. But there was a, an evacuation. I don't want to talk to you this morning about another evacuation, when Jesus evacuated the temple. So we're going to look in John chapter 2. If you've got a Bible with you, um, or you can grab one from the, from the windowsill, this is the Gospel of John chapter 2. I'd just like to read this to you first, and then we're going to go back and look at it a bit deeper. So starting in verse 12 of John 2. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get those out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then Jesus, sorry, the Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Well, I'd like to give us some context for this passage, because there's a lot going on here in the background. Jesus has come to the, the temple for the Passover. The Passover was a, a yearly festival that was celebrated to celebrate just that, the Passover. It came from the times when the Israelites were in Egypt and they were in slavery and God had sent Moses to set his people free so that Pharaoh might let his people go. And there are various plagues that, that God exacted upon the Egyptian people in the hope that, or in the plan that, Pharaoh would let his people go, but he didn't. And so God said, well, there will be another plague. There will be a plague of the death of the firstborn child. And said, so what you need to do... <laughs> said to the Israelites to avoid this when the angel comes is you need to you need to sacrifice a lamb and you need to take some blood from this lamb 
underneath the doorway, over the doorpost of your home or of your tent. And when the angel comes, he will pass over your home, the festival of the Passover. And it became a yearly festival that the Israelites would then remember the goodness and the faithfulness of God and what he had done for them in setting them free. So this Passover in Jesus' time, they always came. He always came to the temple for Passover. And if we read around the history, there are probably around 300,000 people in Jerusalem at this time that lived there. This was their uh, population, not too dissimilar to Plymouth, 300,000. But at the time of the Passover, this would rise to about a million. Some people say even a lot more than that, but at least a million people in a city that was designed for 300,000. It was packed. Every Airbnb was full. Every Verbo was full. Every room, every scrap of land was full. It was packed. And in the court of the Gentiles of the, the temple, this outer court where Gentiles could go, non-Jews could go to offer up their prayers. This is where they came. That's the only place they were allowed. Some say that that was about 35 acres, which sounds like quite a big, big space, about 30 football pitches, and you think that's quite a big space. But not when you add in a million people. It was very busy. It was very overcrowded. Josephus, the, the Jewish historian, says that at Passover, you could expect to see a 250,000 sacrifices. 250,000 sacrifices. This was a busy time. This was a busy place. There was a lot going on. So I want us to look at this passage again in light of that, now that our minds can see just how busy and how packed and how chaotic this place was. So we're going to read the passage again. I'm going to start in verse 13 this time. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables, exchanging money. As I've said, it was packed. What did Jesus see? What was it that made him angry? We know that he got angry. We've just read about him walking in and driving everybody out. What made him angry? Well, there are people that used to sell animals, those that were selling animals for sacrifices and their money changes. They used to be outside of the temple. They used to be outside, and now they had found their way in. And this was part of the corrupt system that was run by the high priests and the, and the Levites and the people in the temple. They were extorting money from people in the name of them coming to God and paying homage to God and thanking him. And they've made their way now into these outer courts of the temple. And why were they there? Why were they doing this? Well, they were providing a service for travelers. People came from all over the region, from different countries. If you're coming all the way from Spain or Italy to the Passover and the temple in Jerusalem, you didn't really want to be dragging with you a lamb or pulling alongside an, an ox. And so they were providing a service and saying, when you get here, we will sell you, we will sell you uh, an animal, and you can use that. And the, the tax collectors, not tax collectors, that, sorry, the money changers, were changing money. Jews were not allowed to mint their own money. They weren't allowed to make their own money and so, at this time. And so they also considered the Roman money to be abhorrent. They didn't want to use it. Certain wouldn't receive it in the temple. So to exchange it for the Tyrian money, they had to exchange it if they wanted to pay the temple taxes, something they kind of had to do. So this is what these people were doing inside the temple courts. So the next question is, so what were they doing so wrong if they were providing this service to the Jews that were coming and to the Gentiles that were coming? And I think the answer is not all that much. 
not all that much. They were providing a service, but in doing that, and the way that they did it, they were also providing or creating a barrier for people coming to God. And they were also providing a big distraction for people coming to God. They seemed to lose why they were coming. There was extortion. That's not good. Apparently, the, the tax collectors, I'll say it again, it's not the tax collectors this time, the money changers, were exchanging this money, and they were charging about 12 to 14% increase on the money that the people were swapping. They were extorting them. So they were taking money from them whilst they were coming to pay homage to the Lord. And the same for the, those that were selling animals, were selling them at an exorbitant rate. So what, what was, why was Jesus getting angry then? Why was he angry? Well, I want to try and show you what Jesus would have seen. He would have come into the temple and he would have seen people that had traveled for miles and miles and days, sometimes weeks, to get to Jerusalem because they wanted to pay homage to God. And what Jesus would have seen is people, some, some locally, coming in with a lamb. They would have come in with their own lamb and they would have said, I've come to sacrifice. And they'd have got to the Levite or whoever it was in the temple that, that decided that this, this animal was okay, this was suitable for sacrifice. And more often than not, they would say no. That leg is an inch longer than the other three. This animal will not do. But if you go and see that guy over there, he will go and sell you an animal at an exorbitant rate. So we've got people coming in, and they they want to come to the temple. They want to come to the temple, and we said, no, there's the first barrier. No, that animal's not good enough. You need to go and buy one of ours. So they leave this queue, and they go over to the other queue where people are selling animals. They go up and they buy this animal in this queue at an exorbitant rate, and then they have to go back to another queue. They have to go make sure that they've got the right money to pay the temple tax before they can then go in and then walk up to the priest amongst 250,000 other sacrifices. They have to walk up to the priest or to the Levites and say, here's my sacrifice. And they say, lovely, thank you. We'll add that to the pie. Off you go. And off they would go. Jesus wasn't angry so much with the money changers. He wasn't so much angry with those that were selling animals. He was angry because people had just completely lost why they were there. There were people extorting money from the very gift God had given. You sinful people, when you come to, I will forgive you, but you need to sacrifice an animal. You can come to me, and you can have your sins forgiven, and you can stand before me, and you can thank me. You can remember how good and how faithful I am. And in this, people were extorting money. But what what made Jesus so angry is that people couldn't do what they came to do. They were coming to God to spend time before God and say, thank you, God, for your faithfulness. Thank you, God, for your goodness. Thank you, God, for forgiving my sins. There was no room, no time to stand and to pray and to contemplate in the temple what God has done for me. In Luke 19, we record Jesus saying, my father's house will be a house of prayer. But this temple had been turned into a market, as Jesus had said. This was merely transactional. People were doing what they had to do. It's the Passover. I need to get a sheep. I need to get to the temple. Oh, it's the wrong one. I need to get another one. I need to change some money. There we go. It's done. The opportunity to enter into worship and intimacy with God was being taken away. Jesus was saying, you've got it all wrong. This is about thanksgiving and forgiveness of sins, redemption and restoration and relationship with the Father. And you're not, you're not doing it right. This very system was given to you to maintain relationship with God despite your sin. And even in this opportunity, you're still managing to mess it up. You rock up, you get an animal, you hand it over, you go back to the feast. No thought of what God has really done 
for you. You're so lost. The system is keeping people from God when it's supposed to bring them closer. And that's why Jesus came. It was no matter what they did, no matter what we have done, we can't pay for it, no matter how many chances God gives us. But here and now, in Jerusalem, the people can't even follow the way God has given them to come near to him while they're missing him out. He's just not even part of the equation. This has become a logistical, transactional process. And Jesus says, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. So Jesus is angry. So he made a whip of cords, we read in verse 15. 15. He made a whip of cords and he drove out from the temple courts both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get those out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. I want to put it to you this morning, I've read some people much more well-read than me, much smarter than me, and I don't know about you, but I've read this passage many times. Jesus did this twice. I don't know if you're aware of that. He, he cleared the temple twice, once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end of his ministry. He almost did it to mark the beginning of his ministry and the end as he went to the cross for the same reasons, to show them this system doesn't work anymore. It doesn't work, and it will never work, and so you're going to need me. But we read it like a narrative. This is what happened. Jesus walked into the temple. We saw some people doing what they shouldn't be doing, detracting from what should have been going on, and Jesus got angry. And we read it like a narrative. But people like D.A. Carson and Tim Keller would say it was a miracle. And I had to go back and read it again. You see, it's not about the whip. If we think about the whip that was... We, we hear about the word whip, and we think Indiana Jones. We think of a great big, long... Leather whip that's whipped to cause pain, that's whipped to keep someone away, that's whipped to grab something. This is not what Jesus used. The word for cords in the Bible, in this is used, uh, the, the Greek that's used is, I'll get this right, is skoineon. It's a word called skoineon. And what it actually means is a bunch of reeds, of, of reeds and, and papyrus like paper that are woven together. I've got a picture just for you to, to look at. You can see. What I mean, this is what this word meant. It's something like this. This is not a whip meant to do damage to people. This was a woven strip of cords meant to use on animals, to move them around. The thinner ones would have been used to, to tie the crates that the doves were in. But these were lying around. They were around, and Jesus picked them up. But it wasn't this damaging leather whip that we might imagine when we see the word whip. So why is this? How is this a miracle? I want to put it to you again that there are tens of thousands of people Animals everywhere, tables everywhere, queues of people queuing for money, queuing for animals, queuing to get into the sanctuary to hand over their animal. People queuing everywhere. It's absolute mayhem. And if this was a mostly violent act, if this caused too much commotion and upheaval, if this was Jesus really beating and whipping people, there were two to three hundred temple guards, temple police on hand. And we don't read that they did anything. Similarly, there was a Roman garrison built right next to, adjacent to the temple, overlooking the temple for that very reason, to maintain law and order. And we don't read that they were employed. Yet when Jesus was arrested to go to the cross, they turned up. But not here. Why is that? There are tens of thousands of people. I want to say something to you, or get you to imagine something. Imagine... Um, 
Imagine Plymouth Argo on any given Saturday. It holds about 16 to 17,000 people in that stadium. And I want you to think, if I walked in there with a, a load of reeds woven together in something long that I could use to, to, to hit animals with, if I walked in there and said, right, everybody out, what happens? Well, if the police don't get to me first, the stewards would get to me and invite me to leave. It's just not going to happen. How did one man walk into an area with tens of thousands of people and get them to leave? How did that happen? All it would have taken was for a temple guard, a temple police, to, to put a sword, uh, to put a, a spear to his throat. What do you think you're doing? Get out. All it would have taken was one big, burly man to put his arms around him and say, What are you doing? You need to leave. Or a group of people to say, What are you doing? This can't carry on. But it didn't happen. Why? Because Jesus is the Son of God. And Jesus carried with him the authority of God. When he turned up into that place and said, get out, there was no question at that time. There was no fighting. There was no scuffling. Jesus walked in with this cord and he started to, to hit the hindquarters of the animals. He said, get out, everybody, get out. Get out of my father's house. You are turning it into a market. We don't read of any scuffles. We don't read of any fights. The only thing that comes is a question afterwards from the Jews. This was a miracle. How does one man move that many people with words and a whip to hit the animals with? We even see that he says to those with the doves, he calls them out specifically and says, those that are selling doves, get them out of here. Why is that? Because they would have been in crates. Jesus couldn't drive them out. They needed to be picked up and moved. So he said to them, move them, and everything was moved. The temple was cleared. This was a miracle. This wasn't force. This wasn't violence. You remember when Jesus was arrested and Peter, we think it was Peter that struck one of the temple guard's ears with a sword and that his ear came off. Jesus was like, no, put your sword away. That's not how we operate. Jesus wasn't violent. He was angry, yes. The Bible says, in your anger, do not sin. Anger is a legitimate emotion. It's fine to be angry, but in your anger, do not sin. And Jesus did not sin in his anger. He just displayed the power and authority of God, and people moved. He was so grieved by what he saw, he picked up this weave strand of reeds and began to cajole people out of the temple. There were no police. There was no whipping, no soldiers involved. Yes, there would have been overturned tables. We know that. He turned over the tables, and the money ran. But we don't read that anybody got hurt. He had driven thousands of people and animals out of the his father's house, the supernatural authority of the Son of God. In verse 17, we read, His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. In Psalm 69, verse 9, this, what this is referring to, King David is calling upon the people, he's calling them back to proper and pure worship, back to worshiping God, to forget their idols, to leave their wickedness and come back to God. And he's He's seeing rebellion and he's seeing resistance. But this is because David now has zeal for God's house and zeal for worship. And this is what Jesus is seeing. He has a zeal. He wants to see people worship God. He wants to see people pray to God. He wants to see people restored to God. And what he's seeing is the exact opposite. And this is what makes him angry. 
but the disciples see, they get it. John says that they remembered this scripture as they saw events unfold before them. This was more than one man driving out some people from the temple. This was the Son of God sending out a mass of hypocrites from his father's house because there was no worship or prayer, only functional transaction. A question for all of us this morning. If Jesus walked in here today, would we be able to say, I came here to meet with you, Jesus? That's my sole intention from the time I woke up this morning to get in here. My sole intention was to meet with you. Could we honestly say that? Or is it really because it's Sunday and that's what we do? Verse 18, the Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Not why, not why have you done this, but what authority? What authority have you got to do this. You see, this was, a uh, this was a challenge on their authority. This was a challenge on their position. It was about them and not God. They weren't concerned that Jesus had just emptied everybody from the temple. How were they going to worship God? How were they going to get to God? How were they going to make their sacrifices? That wasn't the question they asked. They should have been asking why. They didn't ask why. They, Who are you? Who are you? What authority have you got to drive all these people out? They couldn't see what was wrong, but could only see their own authority and their status quo being threatened. They were looking for a Messiah who would attack the authority and oppression of the Romans. They were looking for someone that would come and free them. Instead, they were seeing someone that looked like he was attacking them, attacking their system, attacking the way that they were doing things, and they didn't like it. But Jesus was not attacking the people. He was attacking the system of hypocritical and false worship. He was giving them a pointer of what was to come, the new system and the new final covenant where he would be the sacrificial lamb that would take away the sins of the world. He came to say, I am the solution. This was the start of his ministry. I'm clearing you out because you get it wrong. Enough is enough. This can't carry on. You will never get back to God this way. So here I am, the lamb that will take away the sins of the world. Give us a sign, they said. Give us a sign to prove your authority. Because one man clearing thousands of people and animals out of a temple on his own was an everyday occurrence. Give us a sign, they said. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. In Matthew 12, Jesus answered them when they asked him again for a sign. When the people asked him for a sign, he said, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. But none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jonah, who is in the belly of a whale for three days. Jesus kept telling them, the only sign is, I will die and I will rise again. I will be in the earth for three days. This is the only sign that you will get, and this is the only sign that you will need, because things are going to change. The old covenant will pass and the new covenant will be ushered in and I will be the way to God. They asked for a sign. Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days. They could only see the natural, not the supernatural. So blinded were they by their own self-importance and little empire. But the temple he had spoken of was his body, John says. You can imagine Jesus saying, you talk of building this temple. I am the temple. 
I am the temple of God. This is where now you will get to God. This is now where you will find God. Through me, you will find access to God. I am the temple. The temple is where the presence of God resided. In the beginning, it was in the Garden of Eden. He would walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day when they were banished, and he then made a covenant with Abraham. It was now in a tent. It was in a tabernacle that was designed specifically for God to take up residence. There was the presence of God. It moved from the tent, from the tabernacle, into a stone-built temple like the one that we are talking about today, and there was the presence of God would be in the temple. Temple was where the presence of God resided. But let's think about that for a moment. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day, and they decided to go their own way. They didn't need God. They ignored him. They did what he said not to, and God banished them. If you're not going to obey me, you're not going to love me enough to do what I say, then you have to go. And God put a flashing sword in front of the Garden of Eden. If you wanted to come back in here, it was under the sword. It was under pain of death. If you want to come back to me, you need to pay for what you've done. Well, then look at the temple. Fast forward to the temple. And the priest was allowed into the Holy of Holies, the presence of God, once a year. One man, once a year. That was it. But even then, when he went in, he had to take an animal with him, a pure animal that was under the sword. And he would sacrifice this animal in the Holy of Holies to pay for the sins of the people. If you want access to me, someone has to pay. You have to pay with your life if you want to get access to me. And then we come to Jesus who said, I'll go under the sword. I'll go to the cross. I'll go under the sword. And I'll give my life. I'll pay my life to pay for the sins of the people. Jesus would be and carry the presence of God. It's why Jesus came. God wants relationship with us. The sacrificial system was broken and it couldn't be salvaged. Jesus' body was broken, but it was resurrected. Jesus was and is the answer to intimacy and relationship with God. So what do we take from this? How do we respond to this passage? I want us to look back at the miracle we read, we heard about, Dave talked about last week. Let's look at the miracle at the wedding of Cana and look at this miracle in the temple. We've got the miracle at the wedding and this miracle in the temple. And commentators, like I've said, such as Carson and Keller, they point to the way that John has put these two miracle accounts next to each other. They don't necessarily belong next to each other in the timeline of the Bible or the timeline of Jesus' ministry, but here they are. John always does things for a reason. He wrote in John 20, he said, I've written these things that the Son of God may be glorified and that he might be revealed to you. There was always a reason why John did these things, why he put these things in this order. So let's look at them both. Let's compare them both. They both show his authority. They both show his purpose. And they both reveal who he is. At Cana, you think, well, where's the authority? Where's the authority? Mary said to her son, Jesus, they've run out of wine. They've run out of wine. What are we going to do? Almost saying to Jesus, you need to sort this out. Jesus said, my hour has not come. What is he saying in that? He said, yes, I am the Son of God, but my hour has not come. You don't tell me what and when to do things. Mary's like, oh, 
Jesus, my son, the son of God. Do what he says. Do what he says. This authority, his ministry was starting. It was coming. And she recognized that he was the son of God. What was the purpose? What was the purpose of that miracle? The purpose of that miracle was to show us that Jesus wants to answer our prayers. He wants to pour into our lives. He wants to pour his Holy Spirit into our lives, just like he gave them the best wine. He wants to give us the best of life. And that comes from living with him. That comes from walking in faith with him. And Jesus wants to do that for us. And he was revealed then in that miracle as the Son of God. We looked at the temple. Where was the authority? The authority came in driving the people out of the temple. He didn't beat people. He didn't whip them like we think he did. His mere presence carrying the authority of God is what drove the people out of the temple. There was his authority. What was his purpose? To show the people how far they had come from God and to show them that no matter what they did, no matter what system they subscribed to, no matter how much money they spent, no matter what lamb they bought, it wasn't going to help them. They couldn't work. Only Jesus was going to be able to provide that final sacrifice. Only Jesus was going to be able to provide eternal access to God. He was revealed again as a son of God, carrying the authority of God. What do these two miracles point to in our lives? What do they say about us and our relationship with God? We need to understand that God calls us to obey him and to love him for who he is and not what he gives us. God calls us to love him because he is God. He has created us and he wants relationship with us. He wants us to love him for who he is and not what he gives us. We can't call on God to change our circumstances, to put our world right, without accepting that if we even make that appeal, he must be greater than we can possibly ever imagine for him to do that. We can't ask him to change water into wine and then say, but Jesus, I don't want you to turn over the tables. This is the same God. This is a God that wants to pour good wine into our lives. He wants to pour the Holy Spirit into our lives. He wants to live with us. He wants to walk with us. He died for us. That's this God. But we think we see another God that turns over the tables and makes life difficult and doesn't always give us what we want. But they are the same God. If we love God, if we believe God, if we want to obey God, we have to accept God in both of these things, in both of these terms. Why? Because he knows the best place for us, the best life for us is with him. Sometimes he wants to just sit with you at your table and he wants to pour you some more wine. I'm talking about his Holy Spirit. I'm talking about his company. I'm talking about his intimacy. I'm talking about his love for you. He wants to shower you with the essay. He wants to sit with you. He wants to be with you. He wants to get to know you and he wants you to get to know him better. This is the Lord of the wine. But there are times when God needs to overturn the tables. There are times in our lives when we're, we're not getting it right. There are times in our lives when we're not coming close to God. There's times in our lives when we're letting things get in the way of our relationship with God. Just like the money changing, just like the extortion, just like the money changes and the animal cells were getting in the way of people coming to God. What is getting in the way between you and God? Sometimes he needs to turn the tables over. I need to show you something. I need to tell you 
something. I need to draw you closer to me. He needs to get your attention. But with God, whether it's pouring wine into our lives or whether it's overturning tables, there is always a purpose. In the good times and the bad, when we're close to him and we're far from him, there is always a purpose for what he does. You know, my, my wife and I have had some upturned tables in our life recently, and it's been really hard. And I find myself asking, why, God? Why? Why have you done this? Why would you do this to people that we love? Why would you do this to us? And then I remember that he is God. He's the same God that healed our daughter's deafness nine years ago. And he's the same God who's overturned our tables. But the upturned tables have brought us so much closer to him. And the wine is starting to pour again. Some of you have been through a lot worse than what we've just been through, going through. But in it, I feel closer to God than I ever have. He's turned over some tables in our lives. Paul, where are you going? Kate, where are you going? Come and sit with me. And he's now turned the table back up again. Come and sit at the table. Come and sit with me. I've got some great wine for you. I've got some great love for you. I've got some great mercy for you and compassion for you. And that's what I want to give you. But sometimes when you go off on your own, I need to turn the tables over and say, hey, stop. You're going in the wrong direction. You're doing the wrong thing. You're walking away from me. Don't do that. I've got so much for you. Don't go. And he turns over the tables. Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. When it seems like Jesus is making a mess, he's always making a way for something better, even greater. Jesus may have overturned the tables. He may have banished people from the temple, like God banished Adam and Eve from Eden. But his plan was always rescue, restoration, and reconciliation. They destroyed his body, and he rebuilt it in three days. And so it became our redeemer, the living temple, and the way back to God for all who believe in him. Why is God overturning the tables? Why is God overturning tables in your life? Why is it difficult? Why is he grabbing your attention? Does anybody else recognize that they reach out for God when they're at their lowest point? When do we reach for him most? When we need him most? What he's saying is, I'm here all the time. I'm here all the time. I don't want to leave you. I want to be sat at your table the whole time. It's you that gets up and leaves. So I have to turn the table over and call you back. Don't let things come between you and God. He's got so much for you. So I ask you, are there overturned tables in your life? What does God want to do with you? What does he want you to get rid of so that you can be closer to him? What are you medicating your life with? The Jews were buying an animal. They were changing money and paying a tax. They were ticking a box. They were doing what they thought they had to do. What are you medicating with? What is it you do that placates your soul? What is it you do that brings you comfort? God says, I want, you, I want it to be me. I want you to come and sit with me. I want you to let me pour the best wine for you because I love you. My son died for you. You are worth it. I want your company. 
Perhaps it's a bad relationship. Perhaps it's pornography, a love of food, drugs, alcohol, gambling, pride, self-reliance, your career, tradition. So I have always done things, so I'm comfortable. If I keep doing the same things, everything will be okay. Don't let it come between you and God. Are you struggling to understand what God is doing? <laughs> know that he has a purpose for you in what he is doing. And then when that table gets put back up again, when it gets relayed again with the best cloth, with the best cutlery, with the best goblets, once it gets relayed again, he will sit with you and he will pour you wine. But if your tables are being turned over, he's calling you back to him. He wants you close with him. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came into that temple and he made a mess. And he caused a ruction. And it was difficult and they didn't like it. We don't like it when God intervenes in our life sometimes. I talked about the police. They show up sometimes when we don't want them to. And sometimes they turn up when we call on them. I want to ask you, are you just calling on God when you want him? Or are you willing to accept that he's going to come into your life and do things that you're not quite ready for? But I can promise you that when he does it, it's with good reason. He cleared that temple. He showed them that this system would not work anymore because he was bringing something new. He was bringing a perfect lamb. He was bringing his life. He was going to climb upon that cross. He was going to go into the grave. He was going to rise three days later, and he was going to tear that veil in two in the temple that only that priest could go into so that you and I could walk right through that veil and be with him. So let's not miss that. Let's not miss that opportunity. When God turns tables over in your life, it's because he wants you to walk back through that veil, sit down with him, and let him pour you his precious wine. Let's pray. And ask the band to, to come up and join me. In fact, why don't we stand? Why don't you stand, and I'll pray with you, for you. Lord God, you are a God of wonderful wine, and you are a God of overturned tables. You are the same God. We sing it. We believe it. You are the God of Jacob. You are the God of Moses. You are the God of Mary. You are our God. You are God. And Lord, we know that you want to pour good wine into our lives. We want, we want you to do that. We call on you when we want you. But Lord, you come when we need you. I pray for people today that may have overturned tables in their lives. And they're not quite sure what you're doing. They're not quite sure why all this is going on. I pray, Lord, that they will return to you. That they will call on you. That they will get close with you. That they would understand Lord, that you, you tell us to pray to you, to come to you with all kinds of petitions and requests. That it's okay to come and ask for the wine. It's okay to come and ask for the good stuff. It's okay to come and ask for the salvation of our family and our friends. It's okay to come and ask for you to rescue us from situations. But Lord, we understand that we need to allow you to overturn tables in our lives. And you do it with good purpose. You do it in love. You do it because you have so much better for us. We think we know what we're doing. We think we know what path we're on. But you came so that we could have a relationship with you.
you came so that we could be with you whenever, wherever we need to be. So Lord, I pray today for those that know you, Lord, that we be prepared to have tables overturned in our lives. And I pray for those that don't know you, that they would know that they can ask you to pour them wine, that they can ask you to pour out good things into their lives. So Lord, as we, as we sing this song, as we sing this song of worship, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would show us, that you would show us why there are tables upturned, but you would also show us those of us that don't think we're worthy, those of us that don't think we can ask for wine, those of us that don't think we can ask for good things, that we can, because you are a good and loving God. And like a good father that needs to show his children where he's gone wrong, that you do that too, and you overturn the tables. So Lord, show us individually, everybody in this building, everybody watching online, what is it? you want us to do? Do we need to ask you for more of your goodness? Or do we need to think, I need to come back closer to you because the tables have been overturned? Show us, I pray. Amen.